The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Gracious God, as we celebrate these baptisms today, we are reminded of the power of your blood to wash away all our sins. By that crimson blood, you have made us white as snow. Lord, thank you for loving us so much to bring us into your church, your bride, to lavish upon us your riches of grace and love and mercy. And God, as we come to your word, we are reminded this is one of your gifts to your bride. In some ways, it is your wedding gift to us to give us your word, to not leave us void, to, to wander and grope around blindly on our own, but to tell us the truth and to encourage us in the ways that you have loved us and cared for us and how you are pressing us out of ourselves to bring this good news to others. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work through your Holy Spirit today. May we leave this place different. May we leave this place inspired to go and live for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on in. Take a seat. There's plenty of seats. Lots of seats over here if you need a seat. Come on in. For those of you who know me, uh, you probably will not be surprised to know that as a kid, I love to play sports. I love to play all sorts of sports, but I was not equally good at every sport. When I got to high school, I tried out for many teams, and every single team that had a cut, I got cut from. So I got cut from basketball. I got cut from baseball. I even got cut from men's volleyball, which was like the low point of my life. But anyways, but I couldn't get cut from football, and football was actually the sport that I was better at. I remember being a sophomore and the coach coming to me and saying, hey, we'd like you to dress for varsity. I was so excited. Couldn't sleep the night before I get to the game. I don't play at all. I'm just there to make the team look bigger. But anyways, I get to my junior year and I start to play and I'm playing both sides of the ball and I'm kicking off and punting. And so I'm in the entire game except for kickoff return and things are going well. And so my senior year, I start getting letters from colleges asking if I want to come and play football for them, or at least they show some interest in it. And so as I started to get these letters, I actually started to change the way that I was playing the game. Um, I'd actually go out and really just try not to get hurt. And so instead of flying around and having fun and hitting people, which God has gifted me at, um, I just would try not to get hurt and kind of arm tackle people and things like that. And if you've ever done that, you may know what happens is if you're playing not to get injured, you actually get more injured. Uh, because you are no longer the hammer, you are the nail, and people keep pounding you. You know, what I learned that over those few games, and I decided to throw that to the side and play my heart out, but what I learned during that time is really transferable to a lot of life, to, to not do things halfway. Uh, Ron Young just told me between the services, I will try to remember what he said. He said, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly with all of your effort, right? And so whatever God calls you to do, do it with all your effort, even if you make a mistake. And so I think that transfers a lot to even church life. You know, I think that many times people are, are hesitant to get involved or get connected to the church or to serve in the church or to follow God's courageous calling on their life, not because they're lazy and not because they're uninspired, but because they are afraid. They're afraid that they're going to get injured. 
that they're going to get wounded by other people. They're afraid that they will make a mistake or that they will mess up. And so instead of getting into the game and being a part of God's mission, they simply sit on the sidelines where they know they can make no errors and make no mistakes. You know, I've talked to a great deal of people here, and many of you probably think I'm talking about you specifically, but this applies to a lot of people who will say, you know what, I don't know if I can get back involved in a church. I don't know if I can connect and serve in a church because I have just been so wounded by the church leadership and the past church that I was at. And while it is appropriate to take time to heal and to adjust and to get your heart right and head right, God calls us to engage in his mission. And his mission is married to his church. And so today, we're going to read the account of the Apostle Paul, going to Jerusalem. And as we walk through this story, we're going to be reminded that if we follow God's courageous calling in our life, which we talked about last week, that we will mess up, that we will be wounded, but that God promises through all of it to glorify himself. So if you would, please open up to Acts chapter 21. Uh, We will be looking at verses 17 through 36 today. It is page 930 in the Red Bible. If you don't have a Bible, There should be one in the seat in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, keep it as a gift from us. We love to give away Bibles. So if you don't own a Bible, take it with you. Enjoy it. May bless you as a gift from Jacob's Well Church. Just to remind you um, of where we are at, Paul is returning from his third and final missionary journey. Uh, During his return trip, he stops and he he instructs the elders at Ephesus. And he says to them, he says, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And so Paul continues in his journey, and he goes to Tyre. And at the church of Tyre, they warn him not to go to Jerusalem because of the persecution that awaits him. And then he goes to Caesarea, and there is a prophet named Agabus that comes and warns Paul that his hands and his feet will be bound and that he will suffer greatly. And so the church in Caesarea, again, tries to urge Paul not to go to Jerusalem, but he has been called. He's been called to go to Jerusalem, and so he goes. And so I want, to, I want you to imagine, if you were in Paul's sandals, okay, and you're walking up the hill, the holy hill, to Jerusalem, and you're approaching the gates, what emotions might you feel in that time? Would you feel nervous? I think I would. Uh, skittish? A little bit scared? I'm sure Paul was feeling all of these emotions as he was headed to a destination where it has been promised to him that he will suffer. And so that's where we pick up today's story. And what we'll see is that at first, when Paul enters Jerusalem, he's actually received gladly. So Acts chapter 21, uh, verse 15 through 17, we'll start with. It says, After these days, we, who is Paul's traveling companions, which includes Luke that wrote this letter, after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh, a Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. So that must have been so relieving for Paul. He's not sure what's going to happen. He's not sure where the suffering's going to come from. He comes and the brothers receive him gladly. Verse 18, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. And so Paul 
uh, goes before the elders of Jerusalem. The church has formalized more. They have elder rule there. James is, is kind of one of the major leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And so he goes before them. And again, he is probably wondering, how will they respond to me? Will they receive me or will they, will they punish me for something? Verse 19, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Again, Paul must have been so encouraged. First, the brothers welcome him. And now the church leadership, the elders do. And so Paul shares with them. He shares with them about his missionary journey, about how he had gone throughout the world to the Gentiles. The Gentiles is a fancy name for non-Jewish people. He went throughout the world and he, he went to the Gentiles and he shared the good news of the gospel with them. And he shared about how many came to faith in Christ, how people were being healed of diseases, how, how some were even brought back from the dead. And so Paul shares the success of his ministry. But I think it's so important for us to understand who Paul attributes for that success. If you look again very closely at verse 19, it says he related one by one the things that, who? That God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. You know, it's so important that Paul acknowledges that it was God who did the work through him. It's important because, first off, because it's true. Because only God has the power to raise people from the dead. Only God has the power to change a person's heart, to love him and to trust in him. But it's also important that Paul acknowledges that it was God who did the work because Paul understands that he is simply a vessel. A vessel for God to use. A vessel in which God's power flows through. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, We have this treasure in jars of clay, talking about his own body, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And so that's what Paul's communicating. It is God's power that was at work. But the final reason why it's so important that Paul attributes his ministry success to God is so that the right one receives the glory. I don't know if you notice in verse 20, but it says, And when they heard it, they glorified God. If you've been through the journey of evangelism with me, you know one of the illustrations I like to share is the illustration of jumper cables. You know, if you had a pair of jumper cables and you held them out, there's, there's absolutely no power in jumper cables at all. Uh, you could take those jumper cables and you could hook them up to a dead battery. You could say, start the engine and nothing will happen, right? You could hook them up to your ears. Nothing's going to happen. Well, maybe you'll get a shock. It'd be fun. But nothing happens because there's no power in those jumper cables. But if you take those jumper cables and you hook one end up to a dead battery and you hook another end up to a living battery, a good battery, a strong battery, the power flows through the jumper cables to give life to that dead battery. God calls us to be jumper cables for Jesus. There is no power in you and there is no power in me to change people's lives. But if we are connected to those who don't know Christ, those that are dead in their trespasses and sins, and we are connected to a living God, the power of God flows through us to bring life to those that need to hear him, that need to be saved. And so Paul is saying, listen, the power is not in me. I was available. I went, but God did the work. 
Let us not testify to the great things we have done, but let us testify to the great things God has done in us and through us. And so Paul, bound by the Holy Spirit, goes to Jerusalem and is at first received gladly by the brothers and by the elders of the church. But then Paul is warned sharply. Verse 20, midway through, says, And they, the elders of Jerusalem, and they said to him, Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. Let's pause there. So this is good news. Paul says, I went out. Many Gentiles came to faith in Christ. And they celebrate that. They praise God for it. And then they come back to him and say, listen, good things have happened here. Many Jews have come to faith in Christ as well. And so they are celebrating. But then the conversation turns. And they say, they are zealous for the law. Very interesting statement we'll talk about more in a little bit. It says, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. A couple things we need to notice here. First off, those lobbying accusations against Paul are not the elders in Jerusalem, but those in the Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem. Rumors have circulated, and so they are angry with Paul. And their issue is not that Paul has told Gentiles, non-Jews, that that they don't need to obey the customs of Moses, but that he has said it to the Jews. Their issues go even further. If you scan down to verse 28, which we'll read in a little bit, we see crying out, they say, Men of Israel, help! This is the man, talking about Paul, who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people, which is the Jews, and the law, which is the Mosaic law, and this place, which is the temple. And so here are the three accusations against Paul. That Paul is teaching against the Jews, that Paul is teaching against the law, and that Paul is teaching against the temple. And so the question is, was Paul teaching against those things? Were they accurate in their accusations? And the answer is, Kind of. <laughs> kind of. How's that for wishy-washy? Let's actually look at these three accusations really quick. First accusation is that Paul is teaching against the Jews. We know that Paul many times had opposed Jewish teachers because they did not see Christ as the fulfillment of scriptures. They were hard-hearted and rebellious, and so he opposed them and proclaimed the gospel. But we also read later in Romans, after this whole scenario happens, Paul says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jews, is that they may be saved. He even says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, anathema, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen. Paul was a Jew, and he wished that anything, he wished of everything that his Jewish countrymen would know Christ and be saved. And so was Paul against Judaism? Kind of, if it was an end in and of itself. But if it pointed to Christ and culminated in Christ, he celebrated it. And he wanted that for his countrymen, for his Jews. The second accusation was that Paul was teaching against the law. In Galatians 2.16, Paul says this. He teaches this. He says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, 
no one will be justified. So he's saying works of the law, the law of Moses is not how you can be saved. But then he also says in Romans 7, he says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And so it seems as if Paul maybe is speaking out both sides of his mouth, but what he is saying is, I love the law, I cherish the law, but it is inappropriately used to climb a ladder for salvation. You, you think about how, how you can obey God's law, how you can be a good person so that God will accept you and receive you, and he preaches against using the law in that way because he is saying that it is not by the law that we are saved, but it is by faith in Jesus Christ. And so is he teaching against the law? Kind of. Kind of. The third accusation, Paul was teaching against the temple. Well, we know Paul went to the temple. He spoke to people about Christ in the temple. He worshiped in the temple. Uh, There's an accusation later that he brought a Gentile into the wrong parts of the temple, which is not true. We'll talk more about that later. And so Paul appreciated the temple. He, He respected the temple. But consistently throughout the New Testament, Paul is preaching that there is a new temple, a better temple. And there are many occasions of this, but I'll read you just one. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul, speaking to the church of Corinth, says, Do you, you all, referring to the church, do you all not know that you all are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you all? And so the Spirit no longer dwells in the Holy of Holies. It dwells in the church amongst the chiefs of sinners. And so we are the temple of God. And so was Paul speaking against the temple? Kinda, <laughs> kinda. And so there's this wishy-washy accusations that are kind of true. And so James, the elder, warns Paul. He says, there's a lot of new Jewish Christians and they are zealous to observe the law. And they think you are speaking against the law. You are in danger. So then they give Paul their recommendation on how to heal this relationship. Verse 22 says, What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Now, I'm not familiar with first century, first century Jewish haircutting uh, theology, um, but thankfully there's commentaries out there that know more than I, and so the New American Commentary, I think, is great light to what's going on here. And so let me simply read to you from that. It says, There were four Jewish Christians who had taken upon themselves a Nazarite vow, a rather extreme expression of Jewish piety. The four were nearing the end of the period of their vow and soon would be completing it with the customary ceremony in the temple. This involved cutting their hair and burning it as an offering. In addition, I think this is the important part, in addition, a number of costly sacrifices were required. A male and a female lamb, a ram, a cereal offering, which is not frosted flakes, it's like a food offering, meal offering, and a drink offering. Paul was asked to join the four and bear the expense of these rites. And then here's what he concludes, which I think is very helpful. He says, this would be a thorough demonstration 
of Paul's full loyalty to the Torah, not only in his bearing the heavy expenses of the vow, but also in his undergoing the necessary purification himself. And so just to sum up here, Paul comes to Jerusalem. There are many Jews that have come to faith in Christ. They're angry because they hear Paul is undermining the law and the Jews and the temple. And so the elders say, hey, go and do this. Offer animal sacrifices. Go and purify yourself. The elders continue in verse 25, confirming that, that, that this doesn't apply to Gentiles. They say, but as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. What they're doing here is they're simply reaffirming what they committed to in Acts chapter 15 with the Jerusalem council. And they're telling them to stay away from idols and stay away from sexual immorality and stay away from things that really will be a barrier in fellowship with Jews. And so Paul is here and he is at this fork in the road. Uh, Should he submit to the Jewish elders and to the Jewish customs, the Jewish Christian elders, for the sake of his own safety and for the unity of the church, should he make these sacrifices and go through this purification process? Or should Paul take this opportunity to proclaim to these Jewish Christians that sacrifices are no longer needed, that we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and he has ended the sacrificial system because he is the culmination of the sacrificial system? Which way should Paul go? Well, verse 26, we read, Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. Paul takes the advice of the elders. Paul decides to go and purify himself and make animal sacrifices. And so the question we are left with is, did Paul make the right decision? Should Paul have gone and made these animal sacrifices? You know, it's been said that, that the best of men are men at best. Was Paul making a mistake here? Was Paul being all things to all men for the sake of the unity of the church and the gospel? Or is Paul compromising the gospel by not insisting that Christ was our comprehensive sacrifice? You know, if you listen to, to preachers on this and you read commentaries, They're actually divided right down the middle. And so for hours this week, I stewed and I thought about it. Is what Paul did right or was it wrong? And after hours of thinking and praying about it, I finally came to the conclusion that I have no idea. I I don't know if what Paul chose to do was, was right or wrong. And to be honest with you, that's really hard for a preacher. Because I don't know doesn't preach very good. But you know what? In this not knowing, maybe there is something that God wants to teach us. You know, I think it is a great reminder that when we follow Christ, when we seek to be obedient to his calling, when we come off the sidelines and we get in the game and we follow God's calling, that there will be a lot of hard decisions to be made, a lot of split-second decisions. And sometimes we will make the right decision, and sometimes we will make the wrong decision, and sometimes we won't even know if we made the right or wrong decision, but we made a decision. And what this is encouraging us to is reminding us that although making decisions and trying to follow God's will is often confusing and messy, that God will carry forth his plan even when we don't know what we're doing. 
And as a result, we will make mistakes by following God's will, but we will also be following God's calling. Um, Katie Horton has been championing Vacation Bible School, which starts tomorrow, which we're very excited about. And over the past few months, this, this preparing for VBS has been like a part-time job, except we don't pay her any money. And over the past week, it's been a full-time job. And so we're very thankful for her and for Dan, her husband, for all the sacrifice of time that they've given joyfully to do this. Um, planning VBS is, is much more than you think. There's a lot of safety issues. You have to think about games and crafts and, and volunteers and all of that. It's kind of like planning a wedding, but a wedding that lasts five days. And so it's been a lot of work. So if you get a chance, please thank them. But this past week, I was asking her, I said, how are you doing? And she's like, oh, uh, I'm doing fine. Um, but I'm just worried that I will forget something, that I'll forget a, a detail about VBS. And I said, Katie, don't worry. You will. You will, right? You will. I speak from experience. See, in ministry, a phrase that I have had to say more than I wish to is, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I messed up. I'm sorry I forgot to do that, that I said I was going to do. I'm sorry I'm sorry that I said that and it was hurtful to you. I'm sorry that I, that I forgot your name. Friends, if you are engaged in God's calling, you will make mistakes. You will need to repent. You will need to apologize. You will wound people and people will wound you. But it is far greater than the alternative of simply sitting on the sidelines and either cheering people in the game or criticizing them. See, when we are jumper cables for Jesus, we are being used by God following the will of God, then we get front row seats to see the power of God at work in people's lives. You know, I'm curious if you have ever heard yourself saying, I'm happy to help out with such and such a ministry, but I don't want to lead it. And the reason you say that is because you don't want to make a mistake. You're afraid you'll fail. You're afraid you'll mess up. Or maybe you'll say, you know, I'd really love to have a spiritual conversation with this friend and tell him the good news of Jesus, but I'm afraid I'll say the wrong thing. Well, let me break it to you. You will say the wrong thing. That's what happens. You will mess up. You will make mistakes. Or you may say, you know what, I, I want to go to that person who's hurting, but it seems awkward because I don't know what to say. You know what, you will say the wrong thing, but it's okay. Get in the game. Go. Follow God's calling in your life, having the confidence that God will fulfill his will even in our imperfections. As we read on in the book of Acts, in Acts 23, Jesus actually comes to Paul and he stands by him. And we read this, that he comes along him at night and the Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God was not done with Paul. And then in Philippians 1, Paul writes this from jail in Rome as he's awaiting judgment and execution. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so what do we learn about Paul? This story teaches us that Paul is a flawed man. He's a sinful man. We already knew that. Paul knows that. But he's just like you and me. But what it also teaches us is that God's glorious plan of redemption triumphs over our shortcomings. 
God calls us to be in the game. If we go in the game, yes, we will make errors. But God is, wants to use us for the glory of His name. And so Paul was received gladly. Then he was warned sharply. And finally, Paul is betrayed harshly. Verse 27. It says, When the seven days were almost complete, the days of Paul's purification, the Jews from Asia, remember Asia, that's important, we'll come back to that later. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, even, even, even brought Greek into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And so, again, these were Jews from Asia who had come to town for Pentecost. And they were familiar with Paul's ministry because in Asia is Ephesus. And they were most likely familiar with this guy Trophimus because he was from Ephesus in Asia. And they knew that he was a Gentile. And they saw Paul with him and they just assumed that he brought Trophimus into the, the Jewish part of the temple where, where Gentiles were not allowed. And the consequence for that would be death. And so a lot of speculation becomes facts. And Paul is in deep trouble. Verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. The, the reason they shut the gates and dragged him out is because they didn't want to defile the temple with Paul's blood. How loving of them, right? Verse 31. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune, which is the Roman leadership, of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions, meaning at least 200 soldiers, and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, just as prophesied by Agabus earlier in this chapter. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. And, of the, and for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. You know, it is one thing to be betrayed by a stranger. It's another thing to be betrayed by a friend or by a countryman. To be betrayed by one of your own. Paul was betrayed by Jews. He himself was a Jew. And not only that, it seems as if maybe Paul was being betrayed by Jewish Christians that were in the crowd, saying away with him. In fact, it was the Romans that were protecting him. See, these fellow countrymen of Paul not only gossiped about Paul and slandered about Paul and made false accusations against Paul, which if you've ever experienced, you know is tremendously painful, but these Jewish Christians went as far as to beat Paul with the intention of killing him. Have you ever had somebody hate you that much? Have you ever been betrayed that deeply? This crowd was so hostile that the soldiers actually had to carry him so that he wouldn't get beaten by angry Jews surrounding them. And they yelled out, away with him. When I was in high school, one of my best friends lived in the neighborhood behind me. 
And I would go over there almost every day to play basketball because I like sports. And, and I remember we'd even play in the dead of winter. And so the net would be frozen and we'd make a shot and we'd have to jump up and hit it out. But we were together all the time. And we had so much fun together. Well, one summer day, our, our relationship changed because I went over and his neighbor, who I wasn't particularly good friends with, but his neighbor and him, that was our age, uh, they were in the living room. And so I walked into the living room. And from under the couch, they grabbed these wiffle ball bats. And they started just wailing on me as hard as they could. And so I ran home extremely distraught, not because the wiffle bats hurt, but because I was betrayed by a friend. He let this other guy talk him into doing this, this crazy thing. And so it affected our relationship deeply for many years. You know, my guess is that many of you know that feeling of being betrayed. Being betrayed by someone that you love, someone that you care for. Maybe it's, maybe it's a parent that's betrayed you, or, or a child. Maybe it's your spouse that has betrayed you. And you know, as I know, that the emotional scars from that run far deeper than the physical scars. Paul was betrayed by his own. And yet after being beaten within an inch of his life, left for dead by his own people, Paul goes to, Jerusalem, to Rome. And in Rome, again, he writes these words. After all this happens, he says, I, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, the Jews. Friends, when you think of someone who has betrayed you, when you think of someone who has hurt you so deeply, what is your attitude towards them? Is your attitude, I hope they burn in hell? Or is it, a miraculous attitude as Paul has here, which is, I would go to hell just so they could be saved. This may seem impossible to you. And as we said earlier, in our own power, it is impossible to have this attitude towards someone who has betrayed us. But this is exactly what our Savior did for you and for me. See, at the end of this passage, the people shout out, away with him, away with him which could simply mean carry him away, but it could also mean this, which I think is probably what they were saying. It could say, take him away from the living. Let him live amongst the dead. Away with him, they shouted. This was shouted many years earlier as Christ stood before a crowd, a crowd that was seething with anger and wrath, a crowd who when they heard Pilate come and say, you know what, this man's innocent, but I will still punish him and release him. They shouted out, they cried out, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. And then Pilate comes to them and says, Behold, your king, which is true. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And yet, as Christ hangs upon the cross, betrayed by the entire world, he cries out to the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, when I read the passion story, I'm often angered by those who crucified Christ. How could they do this? All he did was preach good news and heal people and give life to folks. Why are they spitting on him? Why are they beating the crown of thorns into his head? Why did they rip the flesh off his back? Why are they mocking him? What did he do wrong? He did nothing wrong. But friends, these pardoning words of Christ were not just for the people in Jerusalem in that day. It's for us here in this room today. It is for you. It is for me. In John chapter 1, we read that Jesus was in the world. 
and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Friends, all of us have chased after idols and betrayed our God. All of us have run after sin, and we have betrayed our Savior. To us, we minimize these things. We think they're no big deal, but they break the heart of God because you are his children. And because you have betrayed God, because I have betrayed God, we deserve to be punished by God, to be forsaken by God. But the good news of the gospel is that the God who created us and loves us and has been forsaken by us was also forsaken for us. Christ, as he approached his death on the cross, shouted out, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because you have betrayed Christ, Christ was forsaken for you to take on your forsakenness and pay for your sin so that his prayer on the cross could be effective. So that when he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So that God the Father could answer that prayer. He was forsaken on our behalf. Are you here today? Do you know Christ as your Savior? Have you admitted that you have betrayed the God who made you and looked to him for your salvation? There is no mistake you are here today. God is calling you to himself. Friends, if someone close to you has betrayed you, it it probably or it may not be wise to trust them. But you are commanded by God to forgive them because that's exactly what God in Christ has done for you. Let me end with this. A few months ago, I was listening to a TED Talk podcast. And I can't remember what the subject was, but they they introduced me to this new thing called Google X. Maybe you've heard of it. Google X is this secret laboratory. And they, they have this, this red brick buildings uh, that's kind of off the main Google campus, and it's called Google X. And what they are called to do is to have a moonshot factory, meaning they're supposed to go after really audacious things. When one of the leaders of this was asked what a moonshot idea is, he says, it has to potentially solve a really big problem for the world. It has to help millions or billions of people. So the second qualification is it has to be radical, science fiction sounding technology, like cars that drive themselves. Now what is unique about Google X is this, and it's so fascinating. Google X rewards people for failing. They reward people for failing. Again, the leader says it this way. He says, they won't take risks and make breakthroughs if you don't reward failure. People will hang on to a doomed idea for fear of the consequences that waste time and saps an organization's spirit. We work hard at X to make it safe to fail. Teams kill their ideas as soon as the evidence is on the table because they're rewarded for it. They get applause from their peers, hugs and high fives from their managers. Me in particular. They get promoted for it. He says, we have bonused every single person on teams that ended their projects. How cool would it be to work there? (laughs) I could earn a lot of money working there. Failing? I mean, I can do pretty good at that. But I love what he says here. He says, we make it safe to fail. You know, today we read the account of Paul going to Jerusalem. 
And we read how Paul probably messed up. And we read how Paul was wounded and betrayed. But we are reminded that he, this happened because he was not sitting on the sidelines, but in the game, following the calling of God for God's glory. Friends, the gospel gives us freedom to fail. Freedom to try big things for God and it not work out because your identity is not in the success of your ministry, but your identity is in Jesus Christ. We can be sure whatever we strive for, even if it seems to end in complete ruin, God promises us that whatever we do, however we exert ourselves, however we try to live out the mission he has put on our life, even if it seems a complete failure to us, that he will use it for his glory. Let me end with 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Paul writes this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Lord, we, we confess that, that our insecurities often keep us from living out the courageous callings you put in our life, God. That we're afraid that we'll fail, we're afraid we'll mess up, we're afraid we'll humiliate ourselves, God. Lord, pray you would give us holy boldness, holy courage to live out the calling in our life. Lord, I think of the saying from Martin Luther who said, if you sin, sin boldly, Lord. Let that be true of us. Let us be going for you, and if we mess up, mess up boldly, knowing that you're a God who forgives us and loves us and cares for us, and is ready to forgive, God. Lord, I pray for those here who maybe, who maybe are so wounded by those who have betrayed them, whether it be a church or a spouse or whoever it might be. God, pray that you give them the grace and the power to forgive, reminding themselves of the grace and forgiveness that you have extended to them through Jesus Christ. Lord, as we turn to your table, we are reminded that your plan is often messy, that your plan often includes selfish sinners that want to put a man to death on a cross. And yet through this messiness, you accomplish great things. You accomplish our salvation. And so God, we praise you. As we look to the table, we are reminded, Lord, that this was done for us, that we might be in relationship with you now and forevermore. And we praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen.